following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. For many generations, and I think still in some parts of the world, sons typically would follow their fathers in practicing the family trade. Thus, we have names like Smith, Carpenter, Cooper, Bowman, and one that most of us are familiar with, Cook. The word Christian used to describe uh, followers of Jesus Christ, we call ourselves Christians, is like these other family names. It indicates that we follow somebody. We follow somebody who goes before us. In this case, we follow Christ. And did you know, children, that the word Christian was first used at Antioch Church? Not this Antioch Church, but Antioch in Asia Minor, uh, just north of what is uh, now modern-day Israel. And we might ask then, if we're calling ourselves Christians, what is Christ about? We know he was a carpenter, but I don't think that's the point here. In connection to our text this morning, he was about making peace. Yes, his, father, his earthly father, Joseph, his adopted father, made tables and chairs and made houses, and perhaps Jesus followed in his trade. But what Christ came to do was to make peace among men. Is this not one of the top concerns of our neighbors today in our communities and in our world? You know, in surveying our neighborhood yesterday here in the Willow Creek subdivision and just around uh, the streets there, and over the past several months, we have found that one of the most common prayer requests is for peace, for world peace, particularly right now in Ukraine, for national peace, with all the strife surrounding um, race riots and, and issues and politics and what have you, for community peace getting to know our neighbors, for family peace, reconciliation between mothers and daughters, sons and fathers, but also for individual peace, as there is a certain restlessness that permeates our world. Are Christians, as followers of Christ, called to be agents or makers of peace? I would argue yes. And if we are, where does this peacemaking fit into the Christian faith and life? I believe our beatitude this morning shows us. In the Beatitudes, in this collection of blessed statements that Jesus is making, we, we've been considering them for several months now, at least when I've been in the pulpit, Christ sets out for us the distinctive marks of Christian discipleship, what it means to be his disciple, of kingdom of heaven living, what it means to live in this kingdom that he's proclaiming and announcing has come, and more fundamentally, human flourishing as those who bear the image of of God. That's what these Beatitudes are laying out for us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Christ has said. He has come to save his people from their sins, as we were told earlier in Matthew's gospel. So how then shall we live? Well, our perfectly wise and righteous king gives us his answer. But the Beatitudes are not entry requirements into the kingdom of heaven. They don't procure for you a passport to travel in the king's land. And they're not promises of divine rewards for good behavior. They're not like tax incentives or something. Rather, these memorable statements, these Beatitudes, express the royal 
wisdom teaching of King Jesus. Christ the King defines what it means with authority to be happy and holy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And today we consider this seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We don't arrive at this statement in a vacuum. That's why I read all 12 verses here. Matthew's record of the Beatitudes is, in fact, Christ's intentional setting of the same. And we see that blessed are the peacemakers is appropriately positioned in this sequence in relation to what precedes it and to what comes after it. Being poor in spirit, as we read, aligns with being merciful. Mourning over sin in our own hearts and in the world around us then ties into being pure in heart. And so gentleness, or as the King James Version puts it, meekness, corresponds to being a peacemaker in exactly the same way. They're all tied together. They give us a comprehensive picture of what it means to dwell in Emmanuel's land, to be with God with us. The spiritually poor, mournful, gentle, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful and pure in heart are peacemakers. That's who they are by their very constitution. This is the profile of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven according to the king of heaven himself, Christ our Lord. This is what it means. This is what it looks like anyway. To be a Christian. To follow after Christ. So this morning, with all of those preliminaries set out, I want to show you from our text, from this beatitude, that every person in the kingdom of heaven must be a peacemaker because God our Father is the ultimate peacemaker. Every person in the kingdom of heaven must be a peacemaker because God our Father is the ultimate peacemaker. So we gather together this morning then. Let us ask ourselves, are we at peace with the ultimate peacemaker? Do we wish to be peacemakers ourselves in our communities, in our church, in our families? And more fundamentally, do we know the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah describes him, to be at once also our everlasting Father, whom we follow? My friends, every person in the kingdom of heaven must be a peacemaker because God our Father is the ultimate peacemaker. Just to reiterate that point. So we'll break this down into two parts. First, what it means to be a peacemaker, and then second, what it means to be a son of God. First, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? I want to lay out for you both the theory and the practice of peacemaking. All theology is practical, so as we define that, we also need to see how that works out. In terms of the theory of peacemaking, there's a vision we have, a mission we have, a precondition then, what we need to be in the first place, and then a key characteristic that will dovetail into the practice. So first, the vision of peacemaking is nothing short of the exaltation of God. It's the glory of God. Yes, we want to relieve the conflicts and strife, as we saw Abram do, but it's why. Why do we want to do that? To glorify God, who is the ultimate peacemaker. We have what's called a catechism here at this church, which is what I like to call frequently asked questions of the faith and of the Bible that we use in instructing our children and, and memorizing ourselves. And the very first question is, what is man's chief end? What is the purpose of our lives? The answer, it's very expansive, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So that's the ultimate vision of peacemaking. And we do that 
um, through, we glorify God through loving our neighbors as ourselves. Romans 16.20 says to us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And so we see God is glorified in the defeat of Satan and he does it as the God of peace. So peace between man and man then has that connection of glorifying God. In Philippians 4.9, we read, The things you have learned and received and heard from and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, in all that we do, uh, I guess Samuel turned on the ringer on the phone. In all that we do, we have peace with God our Father, and we seek for peace that glorifies Him. Christ will say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what our peacemaking does. That's the vision. So then the mission then that each of us have is to pursue peace, to use our influence in every sphere of life to promote peace. Children, you have a great deal of influence in your homes in this respect especially homes with lots of children. Do you pursue peace and promote peace to the glory of God? If you do, what a difference that makes for us. And parents, certainly, as you bring your children into peace one with another in the midst of strife, you are glorifying God in heaven, not just bringing relief to yourself. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is our mission. Romans 14, 19 continues, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, speaking particularly of life in the church. In Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And 1 Peter 3, 11, finally, quoting Psalm 34, 14, which we sang, He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is the mission of the Christian to the glory of God. But there's a precondition here. As we consider the world around us, you may know that we even have formal peacekeepers in the world. They work, they're soldiers from member states of the UN, and they put on these blue helmets and they go to war torn areas to try to establish peace. That's a man-made peace, and it's frequently unsuccessful. If you look at the track record of the United Nations and the League of Nations before them, wars continue to flare up in the world today. And so what kind of peace are we talking about? We're not talking about any man-made peace, any peace being uh, the force of man's will. Rather, we're speaking of the peace that comes from above. The precondition then, having looked at the vision and the mission, this is heavy, the precondition is you must be born again. You must be born from above. This is a work of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of peace. Intrigue and secrecy and backbiting, this is the normal mode of humanity in our world. And that breeds conflict and strife as, as man and man seeks after his own interest in this dog-eat-dog world of ours, but when the Spirit rushes in 
and grants you that new heart and saves the sinner, he brings what we've heard about already in the Beatitudes, purity of heart, which is evidence in sincerity and openness between man and man. And thus, peace is promoted and pursued. This is essential, this sincerity, this purity of heart, as we've seen already in previous weeks, is essential now to peacemaking. And so now, what does peacemaking look like? Well, there's a theoretical characteristic, which we then see fleshed out in practice. And so we need to consider the characteristic. It's very simple, to be peaceable, to be peaceable by nature, to be peaceable in all your interactions, to be neither quarrelsome nor entitled, not to stand on your own rights and privileges, but rather to seek the interests of others. We apply this in Presbyterian contexts in particular to the qualifications for an officer of the church, for an elder or a deacon. And as a church plant, we're, we're looking now and considering who among us the Lord may be calling to be elders and deacons. And this is what Paul says of what we're looking for in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that means fighting spirit, but gentle, peaceable, and free from the love of money. That's the profile of what we're looking for in our leaders, that they'd be committed to peace and peacemaking in the congregation. Men, as some of you are even being approached by Dr. Pipe and myself or perhaps other members of the congregation, examine your heart. Am I peaceable? Am I committed to go through the very inconvenient uh, process, as it were, of pursuing peace in the congregation and making peace? So now we've laid out the theory of peacemaking. I want to look very briefly at the practice of it, give you some practical uh, guidelines, as it were, what it looks like to be peaceable in practice, to be a peacemaker. I have four things. That you're slow to speak, quick to think, committed to mercy, and called to peace. First, slow to speak. James 1:19 tells us, This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In that connection, being slow to speak then is in particularly in response to angry words. Those of you who've been married a long time, and there's a few of us in here, how many times have you responded in anger to your husband or your wife? How many times have you lashed back out at them? Certainly all of us are guilty of this at one point or another. But James tells us everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. Therefore, slow to anger. We're not to be defensive by default, again, self-seeking, but rather to be other-interested. When someone comes to you angry, you have to ask yourself, being slow to speak, what's behind them? What's troubling them? Have I done something to offend them or something else going on in their lives? That's tied back into mercy, as we looked at uh, two weeks ago. But also, being slow to speak means not being gossipy. And so you may have someone who comes to you and begins blabbering on and on about some wrong that they've experienced at the hands of somebody else. And the person who's slow to speak then doesn't engage in the gossip. 
but perhaps is quick to say one thing, you know, I don't want to hear about that. Or I got I to gotta get away from this situation. That's what it means to be slow to speak. It's so much different, again, than the world around us. All you have to do is turn on the news, and it's full of angry words. Turn on the radio, and it's people shouting at each other all the time. Or open up Twitter or Facebook, and you see the raging mob uh, on a 24-7 cycle. Angry words proliferate. It is our job, then, to be slow to speak, and then quick to think. Quick to think. Psalm 4 has a beautiful picture of what what we must do in response to adversity and anger in the world, the psalmist says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Those sacrifices of righteousness are a contrite heart and a broken spirit, as we know from Psalm 51. And so that's what he's referring to there. We need to reflect then When we encounter anger, when we feel anger rise up within us ourselves, reflect on the gospel. What are the gospel implications of the situation you're facing? First and foremost, I am a sinner in a world surrounded by sinners. But Christ has defeated sin by his death. By the shedding of his blood, given that once for all sacrifice on the cross, that sin might be laid low and bursting forth from the grave, triumphant over sin, death, and Satan, he's defeated sin. And the grace of God today, in your every situation, in your every conflict and strife, the grace of God, therefore, is sufficient. Reflect on these grand gospel truths. Do you accept them? Do you know them? Do you claim them for your own creed? If so, then you, my friend, must be a person of peace. Thirdly, be committed to mercy. Now, it's easy to be merciful to our children. We love them. They look like us. They do things that are very familiar. They do the things we do wrong. And so we can be merciful with them and patient because we see that they get their messed up ness from us. But what about from those outside of your family? What about your enemies? What about that nasty neighbor who does wicked and horrible things? There, in my old church down the road here, there is a dear family, a very sweet family, sweetest kids out there, other than my kids, of course. And um, they, they went through this horrible, horrible experience with the next-door neighbor who would put up signs along their driving driveway that said, rat's nest, pointing to their house that would blare music filled with profanities out into the street when their kids were playing. It got to the point where they asked the pastor to come and talk to them. Those neighbors tried to sue him for harassment, for just knocking on the door to say, hey, what's going on? And then the cops had to get involved, and ultimately it was resolved. But, I mean, that's, that's what we will face sometimes and at times. It makes very little sense. But in talking with that family the thing that they ran up against is like, yeah, these people are nasty. There's no doubt about it. And we don't know how to be merciful to them. We don't know how to love them. We don't, we don't know how to respond to this because they put up this wall with speakers in it to blast bad music at them and with signs on it. And there's no way for us to really deal with this. But we must be committed to people such as that, to doing mercy to them as much as we can. Christ will say later on in this very chapter, 
in Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Psalm 120, verse 7, uh, the psalmist cries out, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is hard, brothers and sisters, but just as a musician must make music in order to be a musician, so too a peacemaker must make peace in order to remain a peacemaker. Romans 5.7 tells us how hard this is. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But would we die for a wicked man? Would we give our lives, would we be merciful to those who press us down? Well, we are called to peace, slow to speak, quick to think, committed to mercy, and called to peace. Called to peace in your demeanor. To be, as one commentator put it, as I read this week, a diffuser of peace. You know, some of you maybe use essential oils. You need to get that diffuser, puffs the stuff in the air, and it fills the room with this scent, good or bad or indifferent. That's what we are to be that the aroma of peace would be diffused out of us into the world around us in your demeanor and in your pursuit of wisdom. It takes much wisdom to be peaceable. And especially in these last days, Peter writes, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. There are times when someone will offend you, perhaps accidentally or just in one-on-one interactions. And Maybe you're tempted to pursue that further, to address that with them, but maybe it's a better part of valor and wisdom and peace to overlook that fault and to move on. Uh, it takes a lot of wisdom to know when to do that and when to confront somebody, but be that as it may, we're called to peace. So having laid out then what it means to be a peacemaker in terms of theory and practice of peacemaking, and I knew I threw a lot at you, but I hope it, it fits together. We can now proceed to the second half of this morning's beatitude, as important as the first half, what it means to be a son of God. Consider what it means to be a peacemaker. Now we must consider what does it mean to be called a son of God. We need to look at the God of peace and then thus the sons of God. First, the God of peace. He is the God of order and not confusion. He's the God of reconciliation and not enmity and strife. He's the God who loves sinners and does not hold them in, uh, in spiteful contempt or hate. He's a God of order and not confusion. We see that in creation, don't we? We can depend on throw a ball up, it will come down. The beautiful order and what we call gravity. We can take out a compass and it will point north unless it's broken. There's order in the magnetic field around the earth. We can predict when the sun rises and when it sets and time our walks to that so we might enjoy the beauty of God's creation. God is a God of order and not of chaos and confusion and indeterminacy. He's also the God of redemption. He's the God that takes the Israelites out of Egypt and delivers them into the promised land. And how does he describe this? Out of the land of the dead, out of the land of darkness and to the land of the presence of God, in the land of light and holiness, where they can be sons of God. This Exodus pattern is all through Scripture. But in our worship, even, he's a God of order and not of chaos. Consider what we looked at in our um, meditation this morning. Again, 1 Corinthians 14.33, not 13, 14.33 
God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Usually we say confusion and order, or, or chaos and order, and loud stuff and peace. But in the Bible's description, confusion is opposed to peace, and God is a God of peace and order, as in all the churches of the saints. He's also the God of reconciliation and not of enmity. What is the message of the gospel? What is it that we profess and confess here at this church? And in every gospel-believing church, it's that Christ came to save sinners because of the love of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21. God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might be sons in this son. Romans 5, 8 to 10, following fast on the heels of what Paul had just said about uh, who would die even for a good man? We read this. God demonstrates, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were yet good or lovely, but while we were yet sinners. Much more than having now been justified, made righteous before God by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's what God's about. He has a love for sinners, not spiteful hate. He addresses sin in the world within us and around us because he loves to save sinners. John 3, 16 and 17 for God, speaking particularly here of the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him and brought to the Father. We have a frequent benediction that we pronounce here from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 which expresses this beautiful, beautifully. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, make you entirely holy, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God is about. He is the God of peace. So what does it mean to be his sons, to be called his sons? Well, to shall be called, as we have it in our text, is to actually be. It's kind of a, a roundabout way of saying they shall be the sons of God. There are present implications to that and future implications to that. The present implications are that we call him father now. Peacemaking with enemies is a part of being a child of God. Christ says later on, but I say to you, again, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, peaceable, peaceful, peacemaking, as your heavenly Father is perfect, peaceful, peaceable, peacemaking. And how do we begin the Lord's Prayer? Just as we prayed it today. Our Father, who art in heaven. There is a present implication to this. As soon as one uh, enters into the work of peacemaking by the Spirit of God, having accepted the reconciliation of, of Christ himself, having gone into that work, immediately then you are called a son or daughter of God. But there are future implications here as well. You will be acknowledged of being a son of God. 1 John 3, 1, 2 puts it this way. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. That is the word for children. It's not the word for son there. Children is a bit more affectionate. Son is more formal. We'll get into that. And such we are even now. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. But beloved ones, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And Paul as well uh, speaks of this future implication of being called the sons or children of God. He writes in Romans 8.23, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now and in the future, for eternity, we will strike a family resemblance. We will bear a resemblance to God, the God of peace. Who will call peacemakers sons of God? He himself will do it. When we read the Gospels and the, and the New Testament literature and the epistles, when we come up to this passive sense where there's no agent, we're not told who's doing it, we just know that uh, it's being done, generally that means that God himself is doing it. So God will see you and say, you are a son of God. I like to think of it this way. It's like a father is at a sports game, per se. Let's say he's watching his kid play baseball, and his son hits a home run. He said, that's my boy. That's my boy. It might be obnoxious to the people in the stands, but it's totally understandable. And what does it do for the son? Man, he's going to sprint around those bases beaming. Oh, that's my dad. Claiming me as his own. He's owning me as his son. Well, when God looks at us, living in peace with one another, particularly as his church, he says, those are my boys. Those are my girls. Those are my kids. He doesn't hide saying, oh, man, I hope no one realizes that kid looks like me. No, he's saying, look at them. They are mine. And so he looks upon all those who make peace in the way that we've been describing it, as a spirit-produced fruit of the Spirit. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And in striking that family resemblance, and being called sons of God here and forever after, we will be heirs of the Father, co-heirs with Christ. You see through the shed blood of Christ, the sons of God, those who have been reborn from above by the Spirit's work and intervening work in the lives of sinners, they now have free access to the throne of grace. They can come before the Father through Christ the Son, by the Spirit, not as enemies, not even merely as servants, though certainly we're that, 
but as co-heirs with Christ, as sons of the living God. How profound we can make claim to all the riches of heaven. Your life may not be filled with health and wealth. Don't believe the snakes. You try to get your monthly contributions or what have you. You will suffer tribulation. We're going to look next week at the persecution that comes from being identified with Christ. But you, dear Christian, are called after the name of your Lord and have claim to all the wealth of heaven, all the spiritual riches of heaven. As heirs of the Father through Christ the Son, we are also called to do his will. We are called to do his will in spirit and in truth. Hebrews chapter 13 ends, uh, has a benediction at the end. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ our Lord, equip you for every good work. We are to be equipped to do his will. In his power, as Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's nothing you can do to muster this up. It's by the power of God himself, and it comes down from above, doesn't it? James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. In praying for this sermon this morning and considering this text, I actually spent much of the week in in a group of other pastors in the Presbyterian Church in America. We were down in Mississippi together. And I was praying, Lord, give me seeds of peace to sow. Lord, bring wisdom from above to bear in my words and in my ministry. That's what Dr. Piper and I are wanting to do here at Antioch. That's what all faithful ministers are seeking to do. And if you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, you are here bearing the name, the name above every name, the name of Christ himself as a Christian. You're part of God's family. You are his son or daughter. You're a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who reconciles sinners to the Father through laying down his own life to pay the penalty for our sins. And there's a popular phrase that perhaps you've seen, maybe on a bumper sticker, a t-shirt or something. It goes like this, know Jesus, K-N-O-W, know peace, K-N-O-W. And then the next line, know Jesus, N-O, know peace, N-O. There's much truth in this marketable motto. There's nothing wrong with having the bumper sticker or the t-shirt. But I wonder if in those eight words, there's too much flippancy much lightness or frivolity to put such a weighty thing this way. Recall how I summarized the message of this sermon at the outset, and don't put this on a bumper sticker. It wouldn't really go anywhere. Every person in the kingdom of heaven must be a peacemaker because God, our Father, is the ultimate peacemaker. Consider the heft of those phrases, kingdom of heaven. God, our Father, an ultimate peacemaker. What's at the heart of them? There's an otherworldliness. It's so unlike what we experience, what we see on the news. What we've been discussing is not of this world. It comes down from above. We've explored what it means to be a peacemaker. I hope that was useful to you. 
And we've also explored what it means to be a son of God. I hope that was encouraging to you. And what have we found? We found that peace is no light thing. It's a weighty, holy thing. At the heart of peacemaking, then, is the pursuit of God's holiness, sanctification, holiness in spirit and in truth. So as we look to Christ now in his word to bring peace to us by his grace, not by our own efforts, but by his grace, we're looking to the thrice holy God to break into our madness, to break in and right our wrongs, to work peace, to make peace. So let's end on a note of gravitas. Gravitas and delight of immeasurable weight and even heaviness, something substantial in the weight of glory as we plead before the throne of God for him to send his spirit of peace, that spirit of adoption, to make us holy. Let's stand together for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.